Our sermon series in the book of Colossians, we've entitled All In for Jesus. And the phrase all in in our culture has a lot of different applications. I think one of the more popular ones is when you put all of your money in in a card game, which by the way, I'm not endorsing. But when you think you have an unbeatable hand or perhaps if you're a really good bluffer, you put all your money in. And your goal, of course, is to win all the money that's in the middle of the table. Now, full confession, I actually did that once. I had just learned how to play cards. I was pretty confident. I was about 11 years old, and I had a pair of threes. So naturally, I went all in. Huge mistake. I'm still paying that off. <laughs> when you're all in, it means that you are without reservation. You are fully committed. It's like skydiving right? Once you jump out of the plane, you're, you're pretty much committed. You can't go halfway down and go, you know, this, this just isn't for me. You know, I want out. Another popular way of, uh, of using the phrase all in is in relationships. You know, Carme and I uh, began dating around 25 years ago, and I was all in. Apart, or in addition to loving Jesus, Carme had that other one non-negotiable quality I was looking for in a woman. She liked me back. <laughs> it really helped move things forward. And so it wasn't long before I was all in. And I can say that by the grace of God, after 22 years of marriage, I'm still all in. I'm all in. Amen. It is the grace of God and the grace of a good woman. But to be honest, I wasn't always all in. There was a time in our relationship when we were still dating that I was maybe partially in, but I certainly wasn't all in. And Carme could tell. And one day she said something to me that I think I will never forget. She said, you act like you could take me or leave me. Yeah, some of you realize the trouble I got myself in. When she said that, I thought to myself, you know what, she's right. I do act like I can take her or leave her because that's how I feel. And I thought to myself, how did I get there? I was all in. And I know I'm not all in now. How did I get there? And I'm going to return to that a little bit later on. But because our sermon series is entitled All In for Jesus, we could ask the question, well, why do I have to be all in for Jesus? Isn't it enough that Jesus is an important part of my life, maybe the most important part of my life? Why isn't that enough? Well, you know, Jesus actually answers that question himself in Matthew chapter 22, in what's called the greatest commandment, where he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, if you can find some wiggle room in there, let me know, but I don't see it. And as we're studying the book of, the, of Colossians, one thing you realize, it is about the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. He is the greatest of all time. Everything was made by him and through him and for him. Everything. And the Bible also says that he is the, the, the fullness of deity. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. And that he left the glory of heaven and he came down on earth to live a life of humility and ultimately to give that life up, to give everything that he had so that we could be reconciled to God by placing our faith and our trust in him. And so if you're wondering, what's the bottom line? 
What is the bottom line? Why should we be all in for Jesus? Well, the reason is this. We must be all in for Jesus because Jesus is all in for us. He has done everything. So this morning, uh, you'll see in your bulletin there's an outline. I'm calling that outline version 1.0 because we're actually going to use version 2.0 this morning. Uh, you can download the new version at www.pastorbillchangedhisoutlineonsaturday.com. I will give you a moment to do that. But the new and improved outline is actually going to be on your screen here. Three reasons that we should be all in for Jesus. And they kind of describe how Jesus was all in for us. And the first one is this, that we were rescued by the Father. Then we were resettled into the Son and then we were redeemed by the Son. Those are the three reasons why we should be all in for Jesus, because those are the things that Jesus did for us. Our passage is Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, and you can find it on page 983 in the uh, blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you. If you would turn there, let's read this passage. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our passage this morning is actually part of Paul's prayer for the Colossians. It begins back in verse 9. And then in verse 12, if you're looking, you can see that he says that we should be thankful. We should give thanks to God because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, he's qualified us for heaven. On our own, we are completely unqualified. And so what our passage helps us to understand is, well, well, what did God do to actually qualify us? Have you ever applied for a loan, maybe a mortgage loan or a third or fourth mortgage, and you found out that you weren't qualified on your own? The bank wasn't going to lend you the money. And so you needed someone, you needed a cosigner, someone whose credit was better than yours so that you could be qualified really on their behalf. And in a way, that's what Jesus has done for us. We were completely unqualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We could not get to heaven on our own. Even if our good deeds outweighed our bad deeds, <clears throat> which is ridiculous if you understand the nature of sin, but even if they did, you still had that big pile of bad deeds that would have prevented you from getting into heaven. So Jesus qualifies us because he perfectly obeyed God the Father, and then he brings us into heaven by our faith and our trust in him. Last week, Pastor Larry gave us the context for the book of Colossians. Paul, the apostle, wrote this book to these Christians while he was in prison in Rome. And he was really thankful to God for them. He was encouraged by their faith, but he was also worried about them. Because some false teachers had come in, and they were tripping them up, they were confusing them about the nature of the gospel and how to live out the gospel. And so Paul was worried for his readers. That kind of thing is true for, for all of church history, people coming in and trying to confuse and trip up God's people. So he wanted them to understand, and he wants us to understand as well, and to be strengthened in the foundation of who God is and what God has done for us in his son Jesus Christ. Because here's the reality. The more that you and I know and are committed to the gospel, the stronger you and I are to resist the lies of the evil one and to overcome the temptations of the world. And that's what we need. 
We need the knowledge of the gospel and a commitment to the gospel to fight the lies of the evil one and to overcome the temptations of the world. So the first reason that we're going to be going all in for Jesus is because we have been rescued by the Father. Verse 13a says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Now before we come to faith in Christ, the Bible makes it very clear that we are in darkness. But it's actually worse than that. The word for domain is the standard Greek word for authority. So it's not just sort of darkness, light, the lights are gone. We are under the active authority of darkness, really of the evil one. 1 John 5.19 says this, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now we can see that, can't we? You just read the newspaper. Listen to the news. See what's going on around you. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So it's not a state of mind. It is a power. And the Bible describes it as being slaves of Satan. And when we are under his control, there are several things that are true of us. First, we're lost. We are spiritually lost. We're also hopeless. We may have little things that we're hoping for, but we are without eternal hope. We're also out of control. He's in control. And then finally, we're alienated from God. You know, one of the ten plagues that, that God brought upon Egypt to uh, encourage Pharaoh to let his people go is a plague of darkness. And the Bible describes it as a darkness that was so thick you could feel it. Can you imagine a darkness like that? A darkness so thick you can feel it. In God's mercy... He helps people who are in that darkness to feel it if they don't resist him. They understand that they're lost. They understand that they don't have any hope, that they're not in control. They understand that they're alienated from God. And that may describe some of you this morning, and if it does, I want to encourage you that there is hope. That God wants to rescue you from the domain of darkness. God desires to do that. Allow him to do that. Plead with him for that. Seek him for that. He is the only one that can deliver you, and he desires to do just that. But the sad reality is that most people who are in the darkness, under this active authority of the darkness, they actually think they're in the light. Because that's what the light does, or that's what the darkness does. The darkness deceives us. And so many people, and you, many of you would even say, that was true of me. Before I came to faith in Christ, I was in darkness but I thought I was in the light. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to describe the ministry that God gave him. He was supposed to go to lost people. This is in Acts 26. You'll, you'll find that his description of his ministry parallels our passage this morning quite a bit. So he was sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was his ministry, to help people who are enslaved to Satan and bring them over to God. So what does this domain of darkness look like? What, what happens to us when we're under that domain? I think it does at least three things to people, right? The first thing that it does is it deceives us. Then it also distracts us and ultimately it destroys us. It deceives us because when you don't know the Lord, you think the gospel is foolishness. That's what the Bible says. It's foolishness to you. 
2,000 years ago, somebody died on a cross on a hill in Jerusalem, and that's supposed to reconcile me to God? That's nonsense. And you start thinking about who Jesus is. Maybe, maybe he was a good man. Maybe, maybe he wasn't. I don't really know. He certainly wasn't the Son of God. The Bible says also that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, so they don't see who Jesus really is. They don't see the glory of God in Jesus. And it also deceives us into thinking that we're right with God when we're not. Again, many of you would say, that yeah, that was true of me before I came to faith in Christ. And many of us would sadly say, we see that in people that we love. That they're in darkness. They don't know who the Lord is. But boy, they sure think that they're in the light. Look at how this darkness actually affects people who are deceived by it. Again, thinking that they're in the light, but actually in the darkness. John chapter 3 talks about that. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, that's referring to Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works for, were evil. Ultimately, they crucified him. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's true, isn't it? It's true for all of us. When we're doing something that we know is wrong, we would rather do it under the cover of darkness than in the light. We don't want people to see that. Most people, though, they think that what they're doing is actually fine. They think they're experiencing freedom. They think that they're doing what they're doing is okay, it's acceptable. One commentator said this. He said, before people come to faith in Christ, they think of themselves as wise when in fact they are fools, reveling in a freedom that only deepened and intensifies their bondage. Reveling in a freedom, enjoying a freedom that actually only intensifies and deepens their bondage. Let me give you a, an illustration of that. It's, it's a little on the lighter side. Do you remember when you got your first credit card? You remember the freedom you felt? I mean, at the risk of overstating it, it was glorious. And I only had a $300 credit limit. I mean, if you saw something that you wanted to buy, but you didn't have any cash with you, you could still buy it. I mean, who doesn't like that? If you saw something that you wanted to buy and you didn't have the cash anywhere, you could still buy it, up to your credit limit, of course. You were not held in bondage by that little thing called your income. You were free. But the more you experienced that freedom, the more you enjoyed that freedom, the deeper and the more intense your bondage to the credit card company became, right? Many of you hearing my voice were in this darkness, but you came to faith in Jesus and you were set free. So Christian, rejoice and be thankful. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness. But some of you hearing my voice are in that darkness, whether you realize it or not. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, if you are not, in his words, born again, then you are under the domain of darkness. One day it's going to be too late to repent. It isn't right now. And so I urge you to go before the Lord and plead with him to rescue you from the domain of darkness. So why should we be all in? Why should we be all in for Jesus' sake? Because God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And the second point is this, that we have been resettled into the sun. That's what the last half of verse 13 says that he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
You know, the word transferred is actually used of sort of transplanting uh, uh, peoples. And so in the Old Testament, you may be familiar with when uh, Israel ultimately became two nations, Israel and Judah. And God warned them if they would continue to disobey, ultimately they would be exiled and sent into foreign lands. And after many, many years of disobedience, that's exactly what happened. They were sent off to foreign lands. And it was a common thing back then to resettle conquered peoples. If you did, it made it easier to exploit those people in a variety of ways. It also made it far more difficult for them to rebel against their new leaders. But in this case, it's a little bit different. In this case, it's actually a win. We're actually being transformed from darkness into light. We're going from hopelessness to hope. We're going from alienation to God to adoption by God. Isn't that amazing? It's the complete opposite. We were in a horrible place, and now we're going into the best place possible. Now, I wanted to come up with some, some illustration to help you understand that a little bit better, and uh, I, I failed. I was thinking, you know, it's, it's like going from Motel 6 to the Ritz-Carlton or from McDonald's to Ruth's Chris. And then I realized, you know, that's not being really fair to those establishments. I mean, Motel 6 has free cable. McDonald's, I'm told, has good salads, I guess. So really what it's like, it's like going from the prison cafeteria to Ruth's Chris. It's like going from solitary confinement to the Ritz-Carlton. It's going from the pit to the palace. That's the resettlement he's done for us. Isn't that awesome? And why, do we, why are we going to be all in? Because he has resettled us from the pit, from, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves, from the pit to the palace. Now, some of you have experienced horrible work environments. You've worked for a terrible boss, in a climate with people that were stabbing your back all the time. It's extremely stressful. You, you really hated the job that you had. I don't know why I'm seeing so many Moody Church pastors nod their head. That's, that's not appropriate. <sighs> Special meeting tomorrow morning. And then one day, it happened. You went to a new job. You started in a new place. And you could feel the anxiety leave your body. The stress was gone. It was a healthy, wonderful environment that you could thrive in. You got there and you made friends and you felt like you could do the best that you could and you were affirmed and encouraged. It was wonderful. I mean, if that's happened to you, you know how great that feels. But even that, even though that could change your outlook on all of life, that is but a faint, faint taste of what happens to us when we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Absolutely incredible. Completely amazing. So what is this kingdom of God's beloved Son? How would you describe that? Well, ultimately at its core, it means intimacy with God. It means having a close relationship with Him. The kind of relationship that you and I were created for. The kind we actually long for. He is the end of all of our desires. And so in order for that relationship to exist, God has to deal with the one thing that separates us from him, and that's our sin. He has to save us from our sin in order for us to be transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Some of you may be familiar with the three ways in which Jesus saves us from our sin. I think it's a, 
It's a really powerful reminder, both of the nature of this kingdom that we're going to, the nature of the gospel and what God does for us. And there's, really, there's three ways that he saves us from our sin. First of all, it's the penalty of sin that we're saved from. And then it's the power that sin has over us that Jesus saves us from. And then ultimately, the very presence of sin. There's some theological terms that we could use to describe these three. The first one, the penalty of sin really is referring to our justification. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. That's, that's the penalty for our rebellion against God. Physical and ultimately eternal separation from God. But on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. So we are justified. Or as some have said, it's just as if I've never sinned. And number two is the power of sin. Because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we do not have to sin. Do you realize that before Christ you could do good things, but you can't not sin? Because ultimately, whatever good you did wasn't done for the glory of God because you didn't know him. And only what's done with the right motives for the glory of God is not sinful. And so we struggle with that still, but day by day the Holy Spirit is helping us to overcome the desire to sin, granting us a greater desire to obey the Lord. And so we have now the power to overcome sin in our lives. And then ultimately is our glorification, that we will be saved from the very presence of sin. There's no sin in heaven, right? So we will have no sin around us. And I think what's also at least equally glorious, there will be no sin in us, that we won't have any sinful desires. There's going to be nothing in our heart that inclines me toward walking away from the Lord. I mean, isn't that amazing? I am so looking forward to that, not only for myself, but for some of you who really bug me. And you'd say the same thing if you were up here. It's absolutely wonderful. God has saved us from all of our sin, past, present, and future. There's nothing more that he can do for us forever. That's incredible. So why should we respond? How should we respond to that in addition to giving thanks to God? What would be an application point? I would say this, Christian, you are in the kingdom of God's beloved son. So don't live in the darkness. Don't give into the darkness in any way. Live as a child of the kingdom of God's beloved son. That's how we need to respond. So why should we be all in? Because he resettled us. He transferred us into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And then third and finally, why else should we be all in for Jesus? Because we have been redeemed by the son. That's really what verse 14 says in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the last time I preached and tried to define redemption, I told the story about when I was a little boy. We used to carry the pop uh, bottles back to the store, and we would redeem them for some money. And if you heard that sermon, you realize I got into a little math trouble. Uh, otherwise, it was a very solid illustration. In this passage, Paul is defining redemption as the forgiveness of sins. Listen to what he says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. I'm going to read this from a, a translation called The Message because it's, it kind of brings out some different nuances. It says this, When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven. The slate wiped clean. That old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. That's what he did. Our redemption, it says, is in him. It's in Jesus and only in Jesus. And you know what else it says? It says we have the redemption 
It's a present tense. It means that it's ongoing. It's permanent. It's a permanent work of God in our lives. We will always be forgiven as members of God's family. One scholar put it this way, sin always has a power that holds people in thrall. So in Paul's teaching, forgiveness must always include the breaking of that power. That's what we talked about, the power of sin being broken. It is inconceivable that God should forgive the past and then send us incapable of living a new life. Pardon without deliverance would be a mockery, and it is never so contemplated in the New Testament. That means that the forgiveness that a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ experiences whenever they confess their sin, and confession of sin means that we say the same thing about our sin that God does. We don't minimize it. We don't deny it. We don't rationalize it. We say, no, that was wrong. That was ugly. That dishonored you. That was sin. When we confess that, we are forgiven now and forever because Jesus paid the full penalty of all of that sin. All of it. I mean, take a moment and think about how that should make us feel. If you contemplate your sinfulness, you'll realize the forgiveness of that, the weight that's been taken off of your shoulders, the guilt and shame that's been removed. It's incredible. But here's the problem, I think, right? The sad reality is that you and I remember the sins that we were forgiven for, even if they happened a long time ago. From time to time, something pops into our minds and we remember something that we said, something that we thought, something that we did, and we're ashamed. We look back and think, I, I can't believe I did that. And so then we wonder, if I can remember that, surely God can remember that. God knows everything. And so what does he really do with my sin? If I haven't forgotten it, maybe he hasn't as well. And so maybe I'm not really forgiven. Well, let me point out a couple of verses here, beginning with one in Isaiah, that helps us to understand what God says about what he does with our sin. And we just need to take him at his word, right? In Isaiah 43, 25, he says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. He does it for his own sake, not even primarily for ours. And I will not remember your sins, which really means, because he is omniscient and he knows everything, I will never hold them against you. He says another thing, Isaiah 38, 17. In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Isn't that great? He just took the mess of my life and the mess of your life and everything I will ever do that offends him, that makes me guilty before him, and he throws it behind his back so he can't even see it. And some of you are thinking, that sounds good, but he could always turn around, right? Well, okay. How about Micah 7:19? He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. I mean, do you get the impression that what God is telling us is when I forgive you, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are free. And I do it for my own sake. Why? Because I've already put that on my son Jesus. And it would be contrary to the character of God. Indeed, the Bible says it would be unjust for God to hold our sins, the sins of those who place their faith in Jesus, against us if he's already done it on Jesus. What a phenomenal relief. You and I are truly forgiven. When we confess our sins and come to Christ, you know, there's a... Uh, commentator said something I thought was extremely insightful. 
He said, all hope for happiness is contingent on the forgiveness of sins. I really never thought about it that way. All hope for your happiness in this life and in the life to come, all hope for that is contingent on the forgiveness of sins. If you are not forgiven by God in this life or not forgiven by others in this life, then there's no hope. You live in shame, you live in regret, and you live in broken relationships. Imagine if you and your friends just, as soon as you offended them or they you, the relationship was over. We'd be completely alone. God has forgiven us. He has given us this hope. So why should we be all in for Jesus? Because God the Father has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son and he has redeemed or forgiven us for all time. That's why we should be all in for Jesus. Let me close with this. In the beginning, I mentioned that for a season in my relationship with Carme, I was not all in. And when she asked me that question, or she said, you know, you, you act like you can take me or leave me, I did wonder, well, how did I get here? How did I get here? And looking back, I think it's fair to say that I was living, maybe we were living in a kind of darkness, not a, not a sinful darkness, more of a stupid darkness. Now, to be fair, at least to myself, I hadn't dated very much, so I was really looking for Carme to lead. So I'm sure there was guilt on both sides. But the darkness of that relationship, that stupidity, if you will, it did deceive me. It, it confused me about how I was supposed to handle the differences in our relationship and how, how those were supposed to get resolved. And it distracted me. I didn't realize just how important they were and how I needed to, to handle them in, uh, in a more appropriate and, and sooner way. I was deceived and I was distracted by this darkness. Ultimately, apart from the grace of God, that darkness would have destroyed our relationship. And can you imagine how sad Carme would be right now if that had happened? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I shudder when I think about that poor woman if our relationship would have ended. Thank you for affirming me in that. <laughs> so, Christian, we know why we're supposed to be all in for Jesus, but the reality is that some of, some of you aren't, and you'd acknowledge that. You'd say, you know, I, I'm not all in. I love the Lord. He's important to me, but I can't say that I'm all in. And, you know, I think there's a couple reasons why we might not be. I think, one, the effect of darkness in your life makes, makes you struggle about a couple things about God. One is that you... You're in fear. You're in fear of what it might look like to really give yourself over to the Lord and say, I am completely yours. You might think, well, I, I, he's going to put me on the mission field in some foreign country with really bad Wi-Fi. He's going to ask me to give away all of my money. He's going to ask me to teach Sunday school to children. I'm not a fan of kids. Whatever it might be, you actually, if you were honest, if you kind of moved away the clouds of darkness, you'd realize, you know, I'm actually afraid. I'm afraid of what it looks like to be all in for Jesus. There's a second reason why I think some of us are, are not all in for Jesus, and that's because we love the things of the world too much. We really do. And we understand that if I'm all in for Jesus, there may be things that I'm doing that he's going to say, you can't do that, and I'll have to stop. There may be things that I want to do. There may be things that I want to buy. There may be trips that I want to take. But the Lord might say, you know what? 
I want you to invest over here. This is what I want you to do with what I've entrusted to you. This is how I want you to spend your time. And your struggle right now is one of fear or it's one of just saying, I just, I love Jesus. But my goodness, I love all these blessings too. And maybe I love them more or maybe I love them too much. So let me encourage you. Those are lies. You are being deceived by the darkness. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are not all in, and we're not going to be all in 24-7, right? But if you're not all in, if you're holding back areas of your life and you know it, then you're believing the lies of the evil one. You're acting as if you're in the domain of darkness rather than in the kingdom of God's beloved son. It's his beloved son, which means he loves you. We are a gift to Jesus. And God only gives good things. And the love that he has for son means that he loves us as well. So you don't need to live in fear. You don't need to love the things of the world more than you love the Lord because he will only give you better things in the world. He has rescued you. He has resettled you. He has redeemed and forgiven you. So my friends, we must be all in for Jesus because Jesus is all in for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, every one of us this morning needs to hear from you and from your word. Some of us are followers of the Lord Jesus, and we are all in. And we've been affirmed by your word this morning because it's not easy, but you've encouraged us to keep going. Some of us have made a commitment to Jesus, but we have to confess, Father, the love of the world the fear of what you might call us to do means that we are not all in. Father, forgive us. Father, empower us to live as citizens of heaven, as residents of the kingdom of your beloved Son, having confidence in you and in your will for our lives. And then finally, Father, there are those here, you know who, you know by name, those right now living in the domain of darkness. And I pray, Father, in your mercy, that they would feel that darkness. They would feel lost and out of control and hopeless and alienated from God because they are. And I pray that in response to that feeling, they would turn to Jesus, the only one who can set them free. Father, do that, we pray, for their eternal good and for the glory of your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.